that's what brought me to Eagles was, okay, I need something that's better suited to handle jackrabbits on a day in day out basis. And really that a male golden Eagle is, is my opinion is the best birds hands down in North America. Um, I mean, you don't need to assist them in any way, shape or form when they get a hold of a rabbit. That's it. It's done. Hey everyone, welcome back for another week of the Falcon Toll podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Marshall Radio Telemetry, the crafters of the most carefully engineered and reliable tracking systems available. For more information on Marshall Radio products, head to marshallradio.com. So our guest this week, Chase Dellis, is one of the Falconers I got to sit down with and uh, get to know some last month at the NAFA meet. And it was cool getting to talk to Chase, not just because I don't get to talk to eagle falconers very much, but it was also cool getting to see his eagles, by the way, beautiful birds. Uh, But it was also cool getting to know him some because he kind of shed a little different uh, light on uh, different perspectives on what gets people into certain birds and falconry in general. And it was cool getting to hear his perspective on, on what got him into Eagle Falconry in particular, which you guys will get to hear shortly. So as always, thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy. Three, two, and one. This is uh, my first time getting to uh, meet Chase Dallas from uh, where from Texas, correct? I am from Texas now. Yeah. Uh, originally Minnesota, uh, mm-hmm. born, bred, lived there my whole life. Got sick of the cold and snow. Well, so. I can't imagine why you would have living in, in uh, you know basically the subarctic up in, <laughs> in Minnesota, man. It yes. gets brutal up there. It, it is, yeah. And I'm much much happier with Texas. Um, I mean, I enjoy the game down there, the weather, the people. Uh, so I visit Minnesota, but you couldn't get me to move back. I probably wouldn't either. <laughs> I mean, Southern Indiana is more than enough for me sometimes. It's not even so much like, it's not like we ever really get, you know, extreme cold, like, like say Minnesota or parts of Wisconsin or anything does, but like just the overall, um, I don't know, the schizophrenic nature of like Southern Indiana, like Midwest weather in and of itself, where it could be, you know, 61 day and then like two degrees and snowing the next it's 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 ridiculous so i agree i agree yeah. I'm, I'm done with those times in minnesota and having 20 inches of snow in april um where i'm at in texas doesn't ever get colder than about 10 degrees fahrenheit for a nighttime low but always above freezing the next day so huh. um much more beneficial for for what i do and some of the exotic species i work with as well gotcha gotcha well i mean does it get super humid down there like during the summers we're right on the edge they consider abilene texas where, where i live these days as the start of west texas okay so we do get some humidity but not as humid as it was in minnesota uh we do get more heat you know we'll run 100 degrees pretty standard during summertime generally doesn't get crazy it doesn't get above uh, 100 105 very often um but it stays warmer in the winter and overall less humidity than i would have in minnesota even Cool, cool. So, yeah. so I mean, growing up in, in Minnesota, then with it getting you know so cold at times and just um, you know everything else, uh, did you? Um, I mean, how, how did you start off getting into um, 
you know, all the, the hunting and, and stuff. I mean, did you ever get into the fishing stuff, like the ice fishing type and stuff up there too? Or it... uh, I never got into the ice fishing to answer that. <laughs> I, I found that sitting over a little hole, staring at it for 12 hours in the ice to be extremely boring. Um, so I, if, you, if you got beer with you and in a shack though, I mean, it could, that is the key. See, I, th I think that that is the keys for ice fishing. They don't really care what catch a fish. They just want an excuse to drink beer on the lake and get out of the house. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I did not get into that. Um, I actually, more traditionally pulled into hunting more than fishing um, I did fish when I was growing up in uh, trout streams but I haven't picked up a pole in, in quite a few years hmm. um, so hunting's been my, my big draw up there um, everything small game big game bow rifle um, pretty much if it's got a season and I can legally pursue it I will give it a whirl cool cool well I mean um, I mean, was it something that your your dad or a family member or something started you out with as far as, you know, just kind of getting interested in it or that uh, extended family? Extended um, family. So okay. my mother and father, neither of them hunt um, mm -hmm. or have any interest. Um, my mom, and my dad were divorced when I was young. Mm -hmm. um, so neither neither side of my family hunted but i did have aunts and uncles in south dakota that were big pheasant hunters oh, okay. so when i would go out there for thanksgiving i would see them hunt i always wanted to hunt with them so i i kind of got the bug myself when i was younger and i went through um gun safety training or hunting hunter education i believe it's called uh when i was 12 years old um you know, got my certificate and just started hunting and I would get family friends, you know, if I could prod them enough to take me out squirrel hunting. So my family supported what I did, but they were never, um, leading me. They never, I've never hunted with my mom or my dad. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was kind of something I had to develop on my own, but they were supportive of what I did. Yeah. My, my poor dad, I, I guess I should never say the words poor dad. Sorry, dad. <laughs> love you. But anyway, uh, you know, he, um, he, he tried whenever I was very young to, to, to take me hunting a couple times, squirrel, rabbit, whatever, to kind of get me interested. And, and that attempt failed. Um, I bombed miserably. And after that, I was just done for years. I had no, I had no interest. And, and, uh, it's kind of funny because, um, like all my friends that I hunt with in falconry, they expected me just to bomb miserably with it because I didn't have a hunting background or anything when I got into it. So it's always it's always interesting talking to to falconers to see if they had a hunting background to start with or if they didn't because it's the one thing that that I've noticed that for whatever reason and you wouldn't expect it, but um, you know you, people with all kinds of backgrounds are able to still somehow be successful doing it with you know, just different kinds of birds and everything else. So it's like, mm -hmm. so, I mean, um, what was your growing up? What was your favorite, uh, favorite game to hunt then? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I kind of all was the same to me. Um, when I could chase squirrels, I would chase squirrels, uh, where I, where I grew up. Um, I moved from my high school years to a very small town in Southeastern Minnesota. So we could get our bicycles before we had, you know, our driver's licenses, uh, bungee cord guns to the front of the bicycles and just ride out of town. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, uh, we'd go, you know, hunt squirrels in the, in the woods around town. So I did a lot of squirrel hunting, um, turkey hunting, deer hunting. I would say for Minnesota hunting, for me uh turkey hunt is probably my favorite i still love to spring turkey hunt um and, and that would be if i had to pick between the, the three that would be it for me huh okay well that's cool i'm just 
<laughs> I'm getting this visual of all these kids strapping like you know bungee 22s to their bikes, just riding out to, to woods and stuff. We, we would do that, yeah, you know, and that was pretty normal in, in uh, you know a small town, 850 people. Nobody thought really anything of it down there. Well, a different era too. You know, that is true. Times that is were, true. Times were much different. You yeah, know? you saw that. You see that nowadays, and and you know, Lord knows what would be what the response would be for that. You know, you'd have I don't even know how many irate adults you know just just calling <laughs> just trying to get these kids uh <laughs> yeah no it, it is very very different and we were uh, pretty well in touch with with the outdoors through a lot of different activities back then yeah, yeah. well that makes sense i mean so i, I how, how was the transition from from all of that then uh you know uh, how, how did how did the uh, the falconry bug bite you so to speak so, um, I grew up actually, so animals have been kind of, I was born into the animal industry. So my, my father and mother started the oldest retail reptile specialty pet shop in the United States. Huh. So I grew up from the time I came out chewing on snakes, chasing tortoises around the house, all <laughs> kinds of stuff. Uh, I was breeding king snakes by the time I was five years old. Uh, so, so reptiles were really my first thing before falconry. But the reason I bring that up is that's what got me into falconry. We would do, we worked at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival, um, mm -hmm. the, the Minnesota Herpetological Society. We'd bring animals out there on hands-on. Well, animal people generally uh, work with animal people. And there was a falconer show out there, which is Last Chance Forever. Uh, John Carger runs it, and it's based out of San Antonio, Texas. Okay. So as a little kid being out there with my dad doing the reptile thing, we would interact with the falconer. We'd all hang out, have dinners. Um, so I just got a fascination with the birds. And I was about eight years old at the time. And I started working for his show out there, helping out, you know, doing all the little stuff, you know, cleaning gloves, cutting up tidbits, you know, polishing props things like that not a lot of bird contact you know to begin with uh, <laughs> right. which, well, which, which eight years old i mean it's yeah yeah, yeah. um <laughs> and then as i you know kind of proved that that it was less than a passing fascination um you know i started to get more bird contact so you know fly a harris hawk to the glove during the show things like that um so i, I developed a fascination for raptors and not so much the raptor specifically, but the interaction of them as a working unit and being able to hunt with them kind mm -hmm. of fascinated me. Right. So I built on that and I started handling it at eight and that's kind of what got me into it. But Minnesota at that time, the legal license age was 15 years old. So gotcha. it was a, a long wait to get to actually being able to do anything practicing falconry. Right. Well, I mean, at least though with, with you getting fascinated that young and uh if, if you got in with the right people at that young age at least that gave you more of an opportunity to have that much more of a solid foundation going into whenever you did hit those teenagers whenever you were you know eligible though i mean i yeah there's, there's just there's so many people that are getting into this sport now that are of all ages you know i mm -hmm. mean even 40s 50s and stuff and i mean i was well i mean i've been i was i was about 30 31 I'm 36 now, so I mean, I haven't been doing it for a super long time myself, but I kind of, you know, even still being relatively young, you know, envy a lot of the guys that, that were like yourself that got into it at such a young age because, you know, I wouldn't have had any inkling that it even existed except for watching like Lady Hawk and other movies. So it's like, it, it, it's, it's, um, I don't necessarily feel like I've, I, I have all this lost time or anything, um, but 
I, I also almost like I've, I've told some of my buddies this, that it would be hard for me to be able to get into it at an even older age, like 45, 50, where I'd feel like I would have missed out on so much already. And, you know, yeah. plus you've got, you're starting to get the, the physical wear and tear aspect of things. And, you know, I couldn't imagine, you know, being in your like mid to late fifties or something like that, wanting to get into this and like having to go out and work and beat brush for the first time, like, you know, having all that, you know, it just, it would be that much harder. I would think it would. I think the, the biggest thing is when you're a kid, you don't really have, you don't have a life per se. I mean, yeah, you right. might play sports, you might have a part-time job, but, mm-hmm. but your life is very fluid. You don't have children to take care of. You're not worried about going through college. As a young working age, you know, adult, um, there's a lot more obstacles, you know, kids and careers and uh, a lot more demands of your time. So people who do get in in that middle age bracket, you know, like you did, um, it, a lot of times it's tough. So, mm-hmm. you know, kudos for, for sticking with it, you know, even though you have a lot of other demands on your time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I still try my best to make time. And, you know, I'm plus I work night shifts. So, you know, if, if usually if I have to if I dedicate any extra time towards falconry or anything else, it usually comes at the cost of, of sleep. So mm-hmm. living in a basic constant state of sleep deprivation, I'm sure isn't doing myself any favors, but it's, it is what it is. I, I can't think of um, right now in my life knowing, like having it any other way. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I appreciate the, the kudos, I guess, kudos back for maintaining the interest at such a young age. Cause I mean, you're all over the place as a kid, you yeah. know, I mean, I, I can think there was about three or four different professions I wanted to be in them. It's pretty normal. I started off wanting to be a vet and I wanted to be like a Marine biologist and I wanted to be, you know, I mean, it's, it hearing, hearing, um, an eight year old, like someone that, that was an eight year old and, and still like over the span of all of those hormonal teenage years and everything else still maintaining the interest in this and and um and making it happen for themselves um is is kind of it's 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 kind of impressive really because you most kids like you said they just drop it you know and yeah. uh and well and kudos for the people around you too for for, for making you earn it you know <laughs> well, for, yeah for for putting up with it you know yeah. and uh and my obsession i guess with with hunting overall but falconry has been my biggest form of hunting over all of the years so right yeah yeah did you do any other associated stuff with any bird shows or renaissance during those teenage years or anything or so every fall i would work at the minnesota renaissance uh fair which was a seven weekends um so last chance forever would come up and they would run the falconer show for seven weekends so i would spend every year from the time i was eight through the time i was 12 working seven weekends handling birds uh working with the show when i was 12 i actually flew to san antonio texas um and stayed with john carger for an entire summer at his facility and he rehabbed somewhere i don't know what the number is these days back then i think it was five to six hundred birds a year hmm. uh so i spent my entire summer break uh as a 12 year old running around down there in san antonio texas learning more about the birds and care and then traveled back up when when the fair started so i did fair that way uh i did a lot of years running shows out there more reptile related things Uh, i never did a bird show or anything um with with any renaissance fair um not because i have anything against it i think that (laughs) they do wonderful shows a lot of them put on great shows i just didn't have the interest of having to perform you know on demand in front of you know thousands and thousands of people in really rough settings i'd rather just do the reptile thing and enjoy flying my birds in my own setting (laughs) well i can only imagine uh having to go out and and do some of those types of shows and you know that just scorching heat you know and i 
in managing managing birds in that mm-hmm. setting too. Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough getting a bird to to be motivated to want to fly and hunt and do whatever you want it to do sometimes in in 60 degree weather let alone you know 90 to 100 degree weather and stuff so i <laughs> yeah you know it, it's definitely difficult and uh, you've got a million and one distractions tons of people everywhere mm-hmm. um and as we all know flying birds you can't control what they're gonna do so yeah um, well and especially when there's a ton of people around and everything else and, yeah you know, so. yeah i deal i've dealt with enough with that through abatement in different settings that uh, <laughs> the last thing i want to do is, is have to try to do something in that form of a setting so gotcha. yeah so um, I mean, so you transition from that and then you go, um, what, at what point then did you, did you start your, your, your apprenticeship then whenever you were able to like that first eligible year? Or? I did. Yeah. So, uh, 15, I took the written test in Minnesota. I built my facilities, passed everything, got my sponsor. Uh, so I got my apprentice permit, was able to trap a bird at that time. Um, I couldn't drive yet. So I was driving back roads, I guess, technically illegally without a driver's license, <laughs> trapping red tails, uh, that fall when I was 15. Um, but yeah, I, it was basically, it was just a countdown until when I could legally apply mm-hmm. um, and do it. And I got licensed when I was 15 and have, have been flying birds ever since. Um, you know, general type things, flying red tails. I spent a lot of time flying red tails when I was younger and then kind of transitioned to some of the other species as time allowed. Right, right. And you didn't you didn't really do a whole lot of like uh like post high school education types of like college or anything or did did you or i did not particularly so the big thing for me is i'll be honest there was nothing that there was nothing in college that seemed like something i wanted to do for the rest of my days right um you know there was no uh i did look into big game guide school uh but i decided that uh, i'd rather be 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 the one out there hunting for myself rather than everybody else that, that that's like i said that's that's another <laughs> that's a whole other realm of, of of stuff that i still know relatively nothing about so that's big game that's a that's a thing a school for that like they do have courses uh it's not like a typical university school it's right. like you, you just know, like a trade or like it's like especially course program type yeah things. it's usually based out of montana wyoming where you it's more of an apprenticeship i guess oh, okay. i would say where you work with um you know with outfitters who are already guiding clients and then you know if you make it through everything they basically recommend you to another guide service you know and, and you can get a job in your profession guiding hunters uh putting them on game uh so that was about the only thing that sounded interesting to me uh none of the other regular traditional normal uh career fields seemed seemed like a good fit something i want to go to school for so i did uh i worked for a couple years i did go to school um i decided i wanted to go to school to be a paralegal um i've always been really interested in law um, but I know I do not have what it takes to spend seven years in school to become a lawyer. <laughs> I knew that going into it. So I said, well, what's the closest I can get to that? Um, and I looked into paralegal. I did go to school for that for a year, but I decided not to continue pursuing it after a year, mm. which at the time didn't seem like a great choice, but it's probably one of the better choices I've ever made mm-hmm. uh, is because I feel like had I finished, had I graduated and gone down that career path, my life would be very different. And I'd probably, <laughs> yeah, I'd probably be locked into that profession <laughs> instead of pursuing uh, other professions and other opportunities, which have allowed me to, to do the things I really enjoy doing. It's you know, having, having done basically that very thing it's it's hard to and you know i don't regret any decision i personally made either but you can't ever help but wonder 
have you just not just taken that extra little bit of risk and not really worried about starving so much and all the other stuff if uh if in the short term at the time you wouldn't have ended up um a lot more miserable but in the long term like a lot more happy you know so yes a little sacrifice sometimes up front can can pay dividends you know it doesn't always work that way but (laughs) but if you take the risk there there are some opportunities for uh for some rewards so right um, i'm in the same boat i i can't complain you know i'm pretty happy with the choices i made and the way they worked out so (laughs) yeah yeah well i mean it's ultimately it's it's whatever whatever you want to do if if um even if even if what you end up with initially isn't uh, isn't exactly what you want, even if it's something that you don't just wholeheartedly love, you, it doesn't mean you still can't be good at it and still have a lot of other things on the side that you do enjoy doing too. You know, so, yes, but, yes. Uh, but so um, you said you started flying pretty much red tails primarily, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, Minnesota is pretty much. Red tails and goshawks are mm-hmm. are the best suited birds in Minnesota. Um, so I focused on red tails uh, mainly, especially when you're younger, when you when you're a younger person in school or just getting kind of on it's your the feet. Most flexible bird for sure. Yeah, I mean they're yeah. really forgiving. They allow you to hawk rabbits in a lot of locations. You don't have to drive as far. Uh, it saves you a little bit of money. You know you can go trap a bird rather than buying a bird. Um, and they're very forgiving, as you said, it's just mm-hmm. birds in general. Yeah, very hardy, and yeah. and they don't require and don't want a lot of extra you know attention and otherwise whenever you don't have time to mess with them so yes. so yeah for for especially for a young person that's on the move and got a lot of stuff going on and doesn't well aside from the fact they still don't really know what they what they <laughs> want to do is probably the best bird for them yes i uh, would agree with you 100 yeah, percent. i agree yeah it's a yeah it's it's definitely interesting seeing um like i said it's they always say and and there's a lot of truth to the fact you know almost hundred percent truth to the fact that, I mean, whatever game you have is, you know, and whatever bird is best suited for the game is what you should do. And, and, uh, so yeah, no, I mean, I, it's, it's, it kind of sounds like, um, the, the area that you kind of grew up in is similar to, to where I'm at in Indiana, where, you know, there's a lot of goshawks, a lot of, uh, you know, red tails and Harris hawks and stuff. And, um, you know, here I am trying to, to, you know, learn how to fly a long wing and, you know, it's, 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 yeah. it's just, you know, it's whatever. But, uh, we all, you know, we all just, um, you know, want to, want to try different things no matter mm-hmm. what at times. And, and so, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of, did you ever do any of the micros also? Did you ever fly Kestrels or Sharpies or anything? Or? I did once. I flew a musket European Sparrowhawk. Okay. Uh, which it was basically, which is a European version of a Sharpie. Right. Um, it's random though. Uh, I mean, for, for, for where you were at at the time, I'm sure. But <laughs> yeah, well, the reasoning was it's, it's an exotic. Um, right. so you don't need to put it on a falconry permit. And I think at that point in my falconry career, I was a general, I had a female ferruginous hawk, uh, that I was flying and I had a female red tail, um, and you could only have two birds on a general license at that time. Okay. Instead uh, of three, like kind of how it is most states now. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, and I wanted, I, you know, I wanted to try flying a, a micro bird. Mm-hmm. Um, so I imprinted that bird and flew it on, um, sparrows and starlings. So stuff mm-hmm. that was, you know, non-native, um, so could, still everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So you could do that. So I did fly one micro. Uh, I don't know that I will ever fly another micro in the rest of rest of my life. Well, um, I mean, imagine that coming from the eagle guy. 
that. I mean, it's <laughs> well, like... <laughs> that, that is true. And part of that is because some people absolutely love taking care of birds. They love handling them. They love feeding them. They love taking care of them. Um, I don't really feel that way most of the time. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, picking up a bird and feeding it on a glove is a chore for me. Like it's mm-hmm. something I would rather not do if I don't have to do it. Right. Uh, and micros are so unforgiving. You have to be on top of your game, weighing two, three times a day, making sure that the weight is just mm-hmm. absolutely perfect. De- yeah. Depending on the species and depending on, on the type of food that you're giving them also and everything yep. else, it's it, there's a, the predictability factor can, can fluctuate amazingly between um you know different birds plus the different types of food that you're feeding them too yeah well even just keeping them alive like Uh if i skip weighing an eagle or a red tail or something you know for a day it's not gonna die on me yeah (laughs) and uh you know the micros just require a lot more attention um you know so i i think they're amazing birds i love watching the little birds fly Mm -hmm. uh but i don't know that i have what it takes to fly a a little bird anymore (laughs) yeah i mean it's and the, the funny thing is 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 actually part of the reasons that you just gave or part of the reasons why I mean in like the justification and not liking him so much is part of the reason why I like flying you know at least part I should say the reason why I I, I like flying kestrels is because once you get past that initial aspect of things Mm -hmm. you know and they just kind of become you know a little bit like house furniture and everything they you don't as long as you have their their metabolic rate down and you know you can you know, hunt them and and feed them um that specific amount of weighed food and stuff each time you almost kind of don't have to deal with them much either once oh. they're man down and well everything. i'm learning but, something new because yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean it's and, and there probably would be people that would want to argue that and have their own different you know opinions on that and stuff too but um you know, like especially if you're feeding like rich red meat like sparrows and starlings mm-hmm. and stuff with like with kestrels um I know like the, both the females that I flew, their metabolic rates on, you know, once, once I got them used to pretty much eating that same, like, like starling or whatever, like food source, you know, yeah. a, both of them, uh, their metabolic rates were almost identical. Like it was an average of <laughs> 0.4 grams, like per hour. And you, all you really had to do is the basic math, you know, and, and just, and just weigh that little ball of food. Like I, you could almost maintain like a, like a female kestrel on any like nine, 10 grams of like starling breast meat, like each day almost, and you just weigh it, give it to them. And then magically they're, they're on weight again the next morning, you know, but, <laughs> but don't get me wrong. They're not for, in my opinion, they're not for like beginner beginners, unless you got strict guidance yeah. and, um, it takes a minute to figure that out, you know? And if you don't have somebody there initially showing yeah. you that those, the little tricks of the weight management stuff and, and everything I, I agree with you um they can you can easily make a micro um a lot more high maintenance you know than than you know they potentially need to be so um but you know so i mean they're definitely i agree with you they're definitely not for for everybody kestrel still honestly is is one of my favorite mm-hmm. birds still even um but they're you know i've flown sharpies too and mm-hmm. uh, a few of them and um yeah, I mean, it's amazing to see the contrast between how some of these smaller birds are so different. And uh, yeah. I, have you? I'm, I'm sure you've probably seen, you know, sharpies. You know, so how how do you think the, uh, um, you know, like the the flying style and the maintenance and uh, and just the variability between say sharpies and the sparrowhawk, you know, were were different. That 
I don't know that I can even answer that question because it's been a very long time since I flew. Didn't have enough bird. of a, a sample size and seeing, you know, dealing yeah. with all the, like, the Sharpies and everything else, too. And I haven't seen a lot of Sharpies flown. Mm. Um, it's not real common in Minnesota. I, hmm. I only knew a couple people that had passage Sharpies. Oh, okay. Um, and really, imprint Sharpies, I knew of nobody who was doing them in Minnesota, um, at least until the last few years i think somebody's experimented with it but but i don't have enough honestly background to be able to tell you how they compare between the the north american model versus the european model i would assume fairly similar um but i i I would be remiss to to answer that with any type of knowledge it probably yeah i'm i'm kind of probably be like asking me questions about eagles yeah. <laughs> that could be <laughs> my, the case my my, my, my my eagle experience is like nil that's so, definitely you know, like, more my strong suit versus the micro so yeah i can i can say that well, i got you well i mean so after you did your your apprenticeship and and you and you flew these different types of birds through your um you know through your general years mm-hmm. and everything else i mean how long did it take you to start getting involved in uh in in the eagles so kind of going back my eagle history um i got licensed in 1999 uh, and 2004 was the first year uh was the first ever eagle meet in the united states the uh, the gathering of eagles uh and i attended that in 2004 so i had a lot of interest in eagles at that point and Honestly, I wasn't really that interested in eagles throughout my my falconry career. Mm. Uh, but what got me interested in eagles was jackrabbits. Mm. Um, so we have white-tailed jackrabbits in Minnesota, or had quite the population back at that time. Mm. And I chased them with uh, female red-tailed hawks. Um, mm. And I caught the biggest one I've ever caught uh, of any of my birds uh, was just over 12 pounds. Um, and that was with a female red tail. It was the only white tail jackrabbit I caught with her that year. <laughs> and I spent the next year uh, chasing jackrabbits with two different red tails and got a lot of fur, but just couldn't couldn't put them in the bag. Our white tails get get very thick, uh, very furry during winter time. So I said, okay, I need I need a bigger gun, basically. Uh, you know, it's just and I was only fist hawking, so I wasn't flying them from trees or from perches. It was strictly I wanted to do it off the fist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, okay, I need a bigger gun. You know, I need to move up and uh i couldn't get an eagle at that time i was just you know brand new into my general right so i said i'm gonna get a phrygianus hawk and mm-hmm. i'm gonna you know do that so i i pulled a, a 16 day old female phrygianus hawk in wyoming uh raised her up i ended up flying her for five years uh, strictly off the fist she was a great bird uh caught quite a few jackrabbits for me she did better on black tails than white tails just the size differential uh but we did catch catch a good number of white tails over the years but it was basically that's what brought me to eagles was okay i need something that's better suited to handle jackrabbits on a day in day out basis and really that a male golden eagle is it's hard it's hard to beat for that is my opinion is the best birds hands down in north america um i mean you don't need to assist them in any way shape or form when they get a hold of a rabbit that's Mm -hmm. it it's done um so that's what brought me to eagles and i started to get really interested uh, about that 2002 2003 time frame so 2004 i went to the first eagle meet uh, i researched everybody who was going to be there all the birds that they had you know and i at the time i was probably 20 or so um at that time when i went out to uh, to the eagle meet i was still a few years away from from even being able to think about applying for an eagle uh 23 was the the age you had to be to apply if you you started and you upgrade to a general and you're 18 and you do five years as a general you can 
become a master at 23. Right, right, yeah. So I did that when I turned 23. Uh-huh. I applied to be upgraded, got upgraded uh, within a couple of days of getting my upgraded master permit. I sent in, at that time, we had a federal Eagle permit that okay. you had to apply for. So, I, and you need, uh, I sent in my master permit copy and all the things that you needed to apply for that permit. So yeah. within three weeks of upgrading to a master, I had my federal Eagle permit. And did you have to have like the letters of recommendation and stuff <laughs> like that from like a few different people and say, that you you know are competent at handling big birds and things like that too yes you did and the way it worked back then was it wasn't you had to put all your large raptor experience but you needed two letters of recommendation from people who had experience handling eagles okay specifically yeah and i had spent a few years so it was 2000 fall of 2007 when i got my eagle permit uh so i had spent from 2004 to 2007 Basically, finding anybody who had flown an eagle, trying to get out hawking with them, traveling all over the United States. I mean, if they were hawking somewhere, I drove out there and hawked with them. Um, you know, and I, I met lots of people. I went uh, international to see eagle falconry uh, in 2007. So I did everything I could to absorb everything eagle, see it in the field, see the hawking happen, um, you know, that way. So I had a really good basis. I knew a lot of people, so when it came time for those two letters, it was easy for me to ask. They had seen me fly my bird, my Fruginus, in the field, so they kind of knew, okay, you know, he's, he at least knows how to fly a bird. We've seen him fly and kill stuff rather right. than... Um, well, not, hey, just, and not just a bird, but a, a larger bird. Yes, yeah, Even yes. larger than, than like a red tail or, or whatever. Yes. Yeah, so the, the letters were, honestly, it was really easy for me, and I sent in three letters just to, to go above and beyond and, and right. yeah. you know, try to make sure, like, hey, give me my permit really quickly quickly please um so uh they did have that at that time it's basically the same way it is now it just required um you know eagle handling experience rather than just large raptor experience gotcha Hey everyone, I'll make this short, but I just want to cut in real quick and say thank you to uh, all the people that have been kind enough to buy the patches that we just debuted recently. Proceeds from that, as well as the sponsorship from Marshall, has gone a long way towards solidifying our ability to keep bringing these episodes to you all and uh, pay for our fees associated with bringing uh, the podcast to all the different platforms. So thank you all again so much. It's been really nice and actually pretty humbling seeing all the orders from all over the world. So thank you again so much. And we really appreciate it so thank you and with that i'll turn things back over to chase so we can keep hearing about his path towards eagle falconry and things that came after so let's get back to it it's been interesting like hearing your your kind of slightly different perspective so Mm -hmm. you know usually if someone wants to get into you know a specific type of bird it's because they think that that bird is cool <laughs> not because what they want to kill with it is cool and they want <laughs> yes. they, they and that's how they you know want to f- make their focus is you know they have a favorite type of prey so they want to get this bird it's it's like a secondary you know or like a like a kind of a um a little like subtext you know or just kind of a, a secondary way of, of approaching it it seems like it's it's yeah. it's different so it's uh it, it's it's kind of it's definitely different you know i mean it, it, you always it, you always hear about someone just being fascinated with, with specific type of raptor or whatever and and they just it's not even so much about the prey when it's really what it should be i mean yeah technically because i mean if you don't obviously have that prey you shouldn't get that type of bird so you know etc etc so on and so forth but um 
I mean, whenever you were going all these different places, then, I mean, you, you, you touched on a couple of those, uh, um, where, I mean, did you end up pretty much like all over the country or just specific or just specific areas? I mean, obviously I'm, I'm sure you were probably going more out West and stuff, right? Cause that's where you're going to find most of your jackrabbits and, and yes. things like that. But I mean, what, where was, I don't care, where was the, where was the first, um, Eagle meet, where was that held? So the first ever Eagle meet 2004 was held in, uh, technically it was Jeffrey city, Wyoming. Um, and, uh, well, Lander was, I guess, technically the, the city, which is a much bigger city, but Jeffrey city is a small little kind of rolled up mining town. Uh, and that's where everybody basically based out of was Jeffrey city. So I drove out there having met nobody, uh, at that was going to be there. I didn't know a single soul, um, and drove out there and, and I'd done a lot of research on them. So I knew kind of who was who and what birds they were flying. Um, did that meet? It was great from an informational meeting people standpoint, horrible from an actual hawking knowledge standpoint. <laughs> uh, I think we, we could probably count on one hand how many jackrabbits we saw during daylight hours that whole oh. week. Um, that, sounds, that sounds really familiar. Y- yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, it does. Sounds uh, kind of like deja vu almost. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and the couple birds that were there, some were still in training. There was uh, one bird that was doing well uh, chasing jackrabbits at night. Um, you know, but it, it, I did not gain a whole lot from the hunting standpoint other than a, a social networking. And I traveled in 2005. They had the Eagle meet in conjunction with the NAFA meet in Vernal, Utah, 2005. Okay. So I traveled there, uh, because I go to the NAFA meets anyway and did not see any Eagle hawking there. Just it really, the area was not the right country to be trying to fly an Eagle. Uh, if you were going to have any success, uh, on off the fist hawking. So that was kind of a failure, but, uh, the, the bright side was I did get to meet Joe Atkinson, uh, who's a very good friend of mine and arguably one of the most successful, if not the most successful Eagle falconer that the United States has ever seen. Uh, he's flown a lot of birds. He's killed a lot of jackrabbits, um, done a lot of rehab work with Goldens. So I kind of, I met him and uh, talked to him a little bit, which gave me an in. And I called him up the next summer. I, I convinced the, uh, IEAA international Eagle astronomers association, our North American basically Eagle meet. Uh, Hey, the last two meets weren't that great. Why don't you let me host the next one? And I will do it in Kansas. Um, so I hosted it in 2006 and I called Joe up and I said, Hey, I know a place where there's a lot of jackrabbits. I want you to come to the meet because I want to learn, you know, how, how you do this with your eagle. I want to basically see everything you do successfully catching trade-offs, how you manage the weight, how you manage, you know, aggression, anything. Um, and that really does a, a wonders when you can tell somebody, hey, please come hawk all the jackrabbits that I found. Well, yeah, um, it's, it's, <laughs> it really is truly amazing how how quickly you become important to falconers whenever yes. you suddenly have these magical fields. Uh, yes, <laughs> And that was, that was exactly how it went. And, yeah. uh, and Joe didn't know me from anybody else, you know, but we talked quite a bit on the phone and I got him, he'd come out, you know, and, um, we're, like I said, very good friends now, but I think I probably annoyed the heck out of him that first year. <laughs> I basically crawled in his back pocket. I mean, every time his bird caught a jackrabbit, I, you know, I, can I walk up to, to kill with you? You know, I'd stand behind him. I watch what he'd do. And I mean, he would tell me where to stand or what to do, but I wanted to mm. see 
how are successful people doing this? How are they doing the trade-off? What kind of flights are they taking? What kind of cover are they working? How is the wind working? Um, everything, and I recommend this to everybody I talk to with any species of raptor. Like if somebody asks me, I really wanna fly a goshawk, what should I do? Find a guy who's really good with goshawks and follow him around as much as you can. Mm, as much uh, as they'll tolerate. <laughs> yeah, as much as they'll let you do it. Mm. Um, and, and so I developed a network. Basically, I met all the Eagle guys throughout the United States, at least all the ones who ever went to meets. Uh, I met a lot of them. I'm still good friends with with quite a few of them across the country. Um, and that was kind of my, my learning process of eagles a couple years before I could even get an eagle was just following guys around who were being really successful. Did, uh, did he ever really do anything to kind of mess with you a little bit when he was trying to show you the, the ropes a little bit? I'm, I mean, obviously, he wasn't going to do anything that was going to get you hurt. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe. I don't know. I don't know how your relationship was with him. But maybe by that time, he was about ready to tell you to go and just reach in there barehanded and try and try because he was so tired of dealing with you. But, you know. Yeah. No, he uh, he was actually really good with that. And um, I, like I said, I'm good friends with Joe and his mm. wife, Cordy. Um, and they, they basically, for lack of a better term, adopted me. At that time I'm the same age as their two daughters uh so they basically adopted me so they were they were pretty good about that so nothing that no practical jokes or real pranks or anything that way <laughs> um but i did have i mean he was very influential in in helping me out with that uh another eagle falconer who was very influential uh was jim rogers who's out of new mexico okay and being a young kid you know in your early 20s really wanting to get into eagles uh i was very interested in doing things and jim was great about wanting to encourage that um and he had a bird at the time uh zoltar a uh, male golden eagle he was flying it's a good name yeah and uh <laughs> you know they had an event that they were doing where it's kind of a meet and greet at, at the 2005 vernal meet and uh he's like i, I don't want to hold this bird for two hours you know like i just I don't want to do it. If you want to, you can hold him. And uh, so he let me hold the bird. And, and uh, I went back to his hotel room and I fed the bird on the glove that night. And I'm sure it's because he's where I am now. He's like, man, this is a chore. I don't want to do this. This guy will do it for free. Sure, I'll let him do it. Yeah, let uh, his arm fall off. Yeah, and I thought it was, I mean, as with anything, first time you ever pick up a red tail. It's the greatest thing in the world when you feed a red tail for the first time. You know, same mm. thing, feeding Golden Eagle. It was such a memorable experience. So there were a few people, and Jim was one of them that really, you know, pushed me and, and allowed me to do things and gain some hands-on experience, which was for me was really helpful and really cool because there were a lot of other people in the Eagle community that were the opposite direction of, um, I'm the only one who can do this because I'm the only one who's qualified. You're not nearly experienced enough. You, you know, so, that, so there were some on that side and there were some who were really helpful like Joe and Jim were. Um, so I'm very appreciative of that, which you'll find about, you know, for about every species for every time. <laughs> type of bird for, for every type of falconry yes yeah. yes and yeah. I, I've always embraced more the other side of it of um, if somebody's interested and they want to learn I'll talk to anybody well, I'll you help you, out as much as I can you obviously <laughs> had to learn from somewhere and and mm -hmm. uh, and you don't want to want to keep fostering more generations of people it doesn't even not even just necessarily falconry but what what good does it do to foster in uh, future generations of people who don't know how to do something right or properly or, or be as, as well equipped to to do it i mean yeah you you if, if you love what you're doing or at least um have enough respect for what you're doing you'll want to try your best to um make sure that the people that are going to be doing it after you're long gone are going to you know, it would be doing the same things or maybe even like learning well enough to the point where they can, um, you know, 
develop it even further or, you know, broaden it even more or, you know, come up with some kind of new innovation that, you know, nobody's seen before or whatever. It's, yes. it's, it's a better legacy to leave behind than being that guy that's just going to teach somebody wrong just because they want to teach somebody wrong or don't know any better or whatever. So. Well, and I think, uh, I mean, I was told uh, specifically when I was getting into Eagle Falconry, I did have somebody pull me aside and say, well, there's a reason, you know, most of us wait till we're, we're older uh, to do this because it's very expensive. It's very time consuming to be an Eagle Falconer. And you probably should wait till you're, you know, over 50 before you get into to Eagle Falconry. Uh, and I thought, well, that's nuts. I'm not doing that. Um, you know, but, but I mean, the elitism thing, and it's there with, with all falconry. Um, you know, I just, I, there's nothing to be honest, that complicated about falconry. It's a, it's a pretty simple sport. We're not training a mm -hmm. whole lot. It just takes a lot of dedication and time, uh, and being able to read a bird. And when you start to see falconry from different parts of the world, I, I learned a lot. Um, like when I was in the middle East, it's falconry is a very community orientated event. It's not, this is my bird hands off, stay away from it. Mine, mine, mine mm -hmm. over there. I mean, there, you can walk in and pick up any Falcon, you know, and, and just look at it and start examining it. It's just part of their culture. And it hmm. was, it was really neat. I mean, at their, their event in festival, you could walk in off the street and be just anybody and here, have a white deer Falcon here, hold on to this bird for a few minutes, take pictures, you know, do whatever. Uh, and then obviously they would take it back. There was a Falconer there, but it was very much sharing and giving. It was more of a community thing than the U S in general looks at birds of, uh, don't touch it. It's mine, you know, kind of, kind of a thing. Right. Um, yeah. So. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's an interesting, interesting point to bring up yeah. you know, how much, um, different cultures and different, uh, countries in general just view dealing with birds of prey mm -hmm. and falconry in general, you know, and some, you know, like I, the, like the, some of the Austrian and German falconers and stuff that I've kind of gotten to know a little bit from my trips over there a couple times, like, um, it's, it's kind of interesting seeing how it's viewed more of just like, kind of like you were just describing with the, with the Middle East, you know, more of the, um, the, um, cultural heritage aspect mm -hmm. of, of things. And, uh, and, and sometimes not, not that they completely don't hunt, but, you know, obviously it's, it's meant like more of the tradition and, and culture aspect of it is kind of almost more the focus than like, than us, which is primarily the hunting side. Yes. You know, so, um, but, uh, so, I mean, and you mentioned also the, you know, your ties to, you know, your friend in Scotland and everything mm -hmm. else kind of expound on that a little bit with, uh, you know, how you kind of got into, um, you know, the co-op deal and, and everything else and, and how, how that works a little bit, because, <laughs> okay. you know, I, I'm completely ignorant to that. <laughs> you know, I mean, you hear bits and pieces from people, but I mean, I don't know anything about that. So. There, yeah, you are correct. There's a lot of tidbits of information floating around out there, but it's a fairly complex system and not a lot of people who are outside of the system really know the ins and outs. So to kind of give you a little bit of a background to that, uh, martial eagles uh, have always been, you talked about species of birds, people like for whatever reason, martial eagles have always been the one species of bird that I've always wanted to work with. Um, I just, I saw a picture of them. I thought they were stunning. That was kind of my, my dream species. Um, and I tried to figure out how to how to get my hands on some ever since the time I was 18, uh, which 
pretty much is, is does not happen unless you know the right people and go through the right channels. So over the years, I got, I've been blessed to be able to meet a lot of very influential falconers from around the world. And, um, I'm, I'm good friends, uh, with a falconer, Andrew Knowles Brown from Scotland. And he's arguably the, probably the, the most competent eagle breeder. He's bred more species of eagles than I, I would, think anybody else on earth he has tons of different species that he propagates in scotland because he loves eagles and conservation um, and we've become really good friends over hawking he would come to the united states and hunt over here uh, at the eagle meets come out with us flying our golden eagles here That's cool and we built that friendship over time and i've spent time with him uh in the uk um at the poachno meet and i've also spent time with him in the uae so we spent three weeks over there so all this time, uh, I've known him for about 12 years now. Uh, we've, we've become, like I said, very good friends. He produces some eagles, and he knew how much I wanted Marshall Eagles. So when he produced Marshall Eagles, I was able to talk him into allowing me to import some into our cooperative breeding program. Mm -hmm. So to expound on that, the, the cooperative breeding program, uh, the, there's two main ones that I know of. There may be more, but there's a Washington program. Uh, the other program is run by Dave Canales out of mm -hmm. Nevada, uh, a very dedicated falconer who wants to see these species worked with in America before it's too late. I got to meet and hang with Dave some of the past the past couple nights for the first time, actually, yeah. Okay, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he really has a vision of wanting to see these species come in and be worked with by falconers because he, he sees the same thing that I do, that if we don't do it now, they're going to be lost to America. Mm -hmm. um, and he's done a lot of work in taking a co-op that was running. So what a co-op co is is a cooperative breeding program that the government says, okay, we recognize you as a breeding program that you're trying to work with X species of birds to keep the bloodline alive if we ever need this bloodline for either reintroduction or captive breeding purposes. Uh, so I, I don't know the whole history. I don't know what falconers put in all the work, but somebody put in a lot of work to get this thing started a long time ago. Uh, Dave runs and facilitates the, the cooperative, um, and he's the one who added the different species of eagles. He added uh, crowned eagles into it. Um, African hawk eagles, uh, Benelli's eagles. Um, I asked if he could add Marshall eagles, which he did. Uh, so my birds that I have, I have three male African Marshall eagles. They're all captive bred from two breeders in Scotland. Two of them are from Andrew. Another one is uh, from Barry. Um, I imported them through Dave's co-op. So with Dave's blessing, we brought them in, and our goal is to breed them and propagate them. So U.S. Fish and Wildlife will not allow you to bring in any exotic species of birds at all mm -hmm. unless it's through a cooperative breeding program or through a pet loophole. If you live outside the United States for 12 consecutive months, you are allowed to bring two pets back into the United States. So those pets can be anything that, that you want. Um, you know, you can bring back two of any raptor. Uh, that that's legal. Just that, go out and get your harpy eagle and just bring it on back with you. <laughs> possibly, I would have to look into the only exclusion to that is if it's a CITES one, uh, if it's appendix one in okay. CITES. So if it's appendix you. two, you can you can bring anything in. So basically, if it's not endangered, you can bring it in. Gotcha. Um, so. Part of the cooperative breeding program, I joined, um, you know, with the intention of, of breeding these birds. So 
I don't know how far to go into this. So I bought the birds, they're mine, but they are part of the cooperative breeding program. I can never sell these birds uh, outside of the cooperative breeding program. I can't give them away to anybody. They're basically property in the, the breeding program and that's their main point and purpose is to be bred uh, in captivity, which I'm currently waiting for females to become available. Um, first on the list uh, with, with both breeders that I know over there. So once females become available, I'll hopefully be able to import those and pair up these males uh, so that we don't lose the species in North America. Huh. Well, that's that's very, very interesting to me how that all works because, like I said, they just you would have to be you have to have that drive for sure to want to make that happen because that sounds extremely complex <laughs> and complicated and, and i know that you're just and and it's totally fine just for the purpose of yeah. our discussion i mean i wouldn't expect you to go into to all the legal jargon and everything else that goes in behind it um by any stretch but that's already way more than than i knew before our you know before our talk so um that's I don't know. It's mind blowing to me probably how much work actually really goes into that. There is the amount of red tape and paperwork. I mean, once you understand it, it's, it's not as scary once you've been through the process once or twice. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's very intimidating looking at the process to, to begin with. And there's a lot of paperwork required on both sides, us fish and wildlife permits, USDA permits, uh, inspections, brokers, uh, all the forms coming from whatever country you're importing from arranging all the flights, quarantine, getting birds out of quarantine. And it's a pretty long process when, when I brought, um, and I, I, I say, I, I didn't do most of the work. I got everything together, but Dave did a bulk of the heavy lifting in filing all the permits and everything. Um, so when we did that, uh, I believe it was almost a year from the time we started the kind of, hey, let's add the species and bring these birds into the time that they actually came in was about a year. Wow. Um, it's been a little quicker. The last import uh, that I worked and helped out with, uh, I brought a bird in, in for myself, again, with all of Dave's help, you know, him doing all the paperwork. Uh, and I helped another falconer that was part of the co-op bring a bird in from the same breeder. I was kind of the liaison because I knew everybody on the European side. Uh, we did it a little bit quicker than that, but it still was a good, you know, eight month process uh, to get everything through, get all the permits, paperwork. Then you have 30 days of quarantine. Um, so it's very expensive. You're and making my head spin right now. <laughs> it, it is very expensive. It's a very long-term road. But if you want to see a particular species in America, it's the only option. Nothing is, is coming out of the wild out of Africa anymore. Um, I mean, really, nothing's coming out of, out of the wild for most places anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're, we're hoping to use contacts in other countries that are captive breeding to be able to bring some of these birds in. Well, well, so so like you know your 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 buddy in Scotland and stuff. Mm -hmm. Then, if that's the case, I mean, how did he get his birds then? So he Same, a similar process. Or? He did what he all his breeding stock right now, or at least a majority of it, is wild caught birds, wild taken birds that came out of Africa for the species that he works with. Um, you know, for the focus of this discussion, but he had a broker who, who met with the trappers in Africa mm -hmm. who would pick out which specific birds he wants, uh, and basically export them out of Africa. And he would bring them in into Europe with all the correct paperwork that has since been shut down, uh, in Europe, nothing's coming out of Africa anymore into Europe. They found that 
pretty much it wasn't legally coming out of Africa. It, it just there were officials that were stamping things saying that it was legal and willing to export it. But uh, okay. by their government. Uh, so that was shut down a few years ago. So Andrew was smart enough to have the forethought to say this is going to end. I better bring a bunch of birds in. And he brought uh, Benelli's African hawk eagles, uh, Varro's eagles, also known as a black eagle, uh, mm. Marshall eagles and crowned eagles in and has successfully bred Benelli's African hawk eagles, crowned eagles uh, and Marshall eagles eagles wow <laughs> jeez so it's it's kind of our turn in america um in that if we ever want to see this species here in the future it, you have to bring it in now you have to be willing to invest the time and the money uh and go through captive breeders to to bring it in um i just want to see martial eagles here when my day comes and i'm no longer around i hope there is somebody who's picked up the torch where i've left off and uh can continue breeding them and maybe bring in some new bloodlines to, to at least for falconers to be able to see them in the future in person. Well, and hopefully by then too, we'll still have habitat and, and everything else in the, in, in the prey species too. <laughs> that I mean, is true. It's, 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 it's really sad how much we're, we're losing every year. We are. I mean, jackrabbits, which is my main thing, uh, mm -hmm. in my opinion, have been declining across the Western United States for, for quite a few years now. It's been especially visible to me over the last five or six years. Um, a lot of the places that used to have lots and lots and lots of rabbits are now devoid. Um, I gave up hawking most of most whitetail jacks in, in minnesota years ago um because we had huge populations on the north dakota minnesota border and they were just gone our farming practices it's it's jokingly called the black desert up there because it's <laughs> it's nothing but black fields they turn everything over in the fall and it's just black fields as far as you can see there's no food there's no cover so we lost a lot of our jackrabbit populations and i'm seeing that a lot in western kansas um parts of texas you know wyoming uh, and there are cycles but i think that in my limited experience and not being a scientist there's something bigger uh, at play whether it's our farming practices whether it's our uh, what we're using chemical wise uh habitat destruction i don't know what it is but but all of the above yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they are definitely getting harder and harder and um I'm fortunate. I travel a lot for my hawking. So, yeah. well, and um, you do abatement too, right? I do. Yeah. yeah. So I, I fly birds. Um, I try to do most of my work. My busy season is spring through, uh, mid, mid to late summer. Um, and then I'm pretty much off through the fall and winter. I do have a couple of my people who work for me. Um, I keep them busy or I try to keep them busy doing work in the winter time. But, uh, that allows me to travel and, and do things. If I work a lot in the spring and summer, then I can kind of take the fall in winter and go travel yeah i mean i there's I, i've got a few different buddies that that do abatement as well and you know part of me envies <laughs> being able to do that and the, the other part of me doesn't envy how busy they are during those times that they are busy but it, yeah I, I mean what what are most of your accounts i mean I know, you, I know you mentioned to me earlier you do a lot of goal you know stuff and i mean what else do you primarily focus on with your abatement I've, I do a little bit of everything, but my two big things are industrial and crops. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I say crops, I mean cherries. Cherries is what I have specialized in since, since I got started. Um, I've done some apple work. Um, I, I've touched a little bit on blueberries, but really nothing, so to speak, on blueberries. But, but cherries are kind of my bread and butter. I know how to do those. And then I do industrial work ranging from um, I have oil refineries that I do. Um, I have some 
independent businesses that have problems with gull nesting issues in the springtime. So we do work with them. I've done some work for uh, the Department of Defense, uh, state of Minnesota, catching pigeons in their helicopter hangars. Um, let's see. Um, other industrial work, I did a, a big job for a liquid natural gas facility, um, preventing nesting birds on development lands. So I pretty much am willing to, to look at anything that anybody's got going. And if I think I can do it, you know, and have good results, I can do it. Um, but I do split my time between industrial and crop work. Crops being summer, industrial generally being spring, uh, and then a little bit of winter work. About, about what part of your... Uh, um a falconry career were you at that you realized that you could do that for a living or is that something that you were always kind of aware that you could do and but i mean when when, when did you really find that that was much more than just like a simple interest maybe that you want to do that for a living i you know i had no clue about it uh early on in falconry and it was i would say maybe 10 years ago now that i kind of started to hear a little bit more about it and um I worked cor corporate job, you know, nothing spectacular uh, for a decent sized company in Minneapolis. And I just thought, I, I don't want to be behind this desk in 10 years trying to figure out how to spend my three weeks of vacation that I get. Um, there, there just, <laughs> there has to be something more. Um, I want more time. That's what I want is I want time to be able to go hunt more and do more cool things. So I started to look into the abatement stuff at that point in time. And I talked to, um, a few people who were very influential in the industry. Um, and, and both, of, uh, both of the people I talked to, I still consider very good friends. We talk quite a bit. Um, looked i went worked for a company basically uh, got my feet wet um, knew i was going to probably do my own thing eventually um, just that was that was my goal um, and that's what i did um, but i looked at it and just said hey i can i if i work hard and i'm willing to go on the road and i'm willing to put in working seven days a week long days I can pretty much, you know, make the equivalent of what I'm making at, you know, my mid-level corporate job right now, but I can do it in four months of work versus year-round work. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I wasn't married, didn't have kids, right. you know, and uh, I pretty much, I, had, I was already running my own company breeding snakes at that time, you know, and, and selling them all over the country. Um, so I had that to fall back on too. You know, if this, this whole abatement thing doesn't work out, I'm not completely high and dry. Um, so I just, you know, kind of, I researched it, learned a lot, talked to people, spent a year uh, researching it and then bit the bullet and, and jumped into it. And um, I can't say I regret it. It's, it's worked out very well for me so far. Well, I mean, it allows you to, um, you know, travel around, like you said, and, uh, um, you know, hang out at meets and eventually find yourself back in a, in a hotel room, you know, um, <laughs> doing a podcast with a, some bald dude you just met, you know, like a couple days ago and, you know, let you, yeah, <laughs> let, a, let, you know, just meet, 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 meets, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, meet new people and, uh, and, and have, uh, you know, cool new experiences and stuff, which unfortunately I, uh, I, I, I hate the fact that like, the 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 rabbit situation here has been kind of, I would have loved to have seen or gotten a chance to go out with you and watch you fly your your eagles and stuff but um you know it yeah just there's wasn't just meant to be this time it looks not like. a lot of jackrabbits here I knew that coming into yep. it um so I was able to to cope with it but uh a lot of people have been out hawking with me over the years at, at NAFA meets I usually have 
pretty big groups, you know, 30 to 50 people in the field. Well, naturally, everybody's going to gravitate towards, you know, <laughs> eagles, you know. So. But I'm always happy. I, I tell you, just like you tell, I'll take anybody out hawking who wants to come hawking with me. I really, um, that's how I learned it. You know, I followed guys around and um, I want to return the favor and give people the opportunity to come see something. So I, I wish I could do it here. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen at this meet just with the the low amount or non-existent amount of jackrabbits here. <laughs> but uh, at the next NAFA meet in Kearney, I will be taking people out. Um, I do have a friend who, who hooks me up with a, a couple fields, so I take people out up there. Um, and if you want to travel a little more, the uh, the THA meet, Texas Hawking meet, is happening January 15th to January 20th. Yeah, uh, Lauren invited me to that also. And unfortunately, I'm going to be out in Anaheim, um, you know, living my... Uh, my music, uh, um, you know, false uh, rock star lifestyle for, for about a week, you know, hey, during that time. So I, that's a good excuse for not being there. Like I, co- I totally get that. Yeah, I'll be I'll be out there at the uh, the Nam Music Convention, the the big um, music uh, merging convention thing that, that happens every year. Um, I, I help my endorse uh, the bass guitar company that I endorse with their booth and stuff usually each year out there. So oh, nice. unfortunately, I will uh, have to be out there hanging, you know, with with my uh, prominent musician buddies and kind of being you know occasionally wine and dined out there instead of you know watching watching eagles fly so we'll we'll have to make it happen another time but i'm sure we will yeah i mean i i don't plan on stopping anytime soon so you you have a standing invite to come hawking with me anytime i'm out hawking well fantastic man it's been so awesome getting to to know you a little bit and everything and hanging out and uh and thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time tonight oh yeah you're you're more than welcome that's what nafa meets are for is having fun and and catching up with people so i appreciate it. i'm glad you thought i was worthy to be a guest on your podcast uh and i'd be happy to do it anytime yeah we we, we try and and uh, and keep a motto it's like nobody's too nobody's too unimportant and nobody's too uh famous not famous whatever everybody's got a story and uh, i'm glad that i got to hear yours and uh, share it with everybody else well so, i appreciate it very much yeah. thank you so much man appreciate it